From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Sleep apnea is a potentially serious sleep disorder in which breathing repeatedly stops and starts. If you snore loudly and feel tired even after a full night's sleep, you might have sleep apnea. Treatments for sleep apnea can include lifestyle changes, oral devices, and sometimes surgery. On today's program, we'll learn more about sleep apnea from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, CBD products are everywhere, but how can you know what's safe to use? Oh, boy. (laughs) And new brain mapping techniques for hard-to-treat tumors. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Sleep apnea. Most of us have heard of it, and that's because it's fairly common. Mm-hmm. It's estimated that there are about 20 million Americans who suffer from sleep apnea, and a lot of those people don't even know they have it. They're sound asleep. That's right. <laughs> sleep apnea can affect people of any age, even infants and children. But it's most often seen in people over the age of 40, men, especially those who are obese or overweight. But what is it? It's when you're sleeping and your breathing stops and starts, and that happens multiple times during the night. There are lots of reasons to learn more about it, one of which is the fact that it can have all kinds of adverse health consequences. We better talk to a Mayo Clinic expert about it. To learn how you find out if you have it and to learn about treatment, including a new treatment for one type of sleep apnea. Joining us in studio from the Mayo Clinic Sleep Center is Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Morgenthaler. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. Morgenthaler, nice to have you. So sleep apnea, most of us have heard of it or know somebody who has it, but it's actually a little more complex than most of us think because there's more than one type. Than just snoring. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's so true. So, you know, I think many people have been hearing about sleep apnea over the years. It is a disorder that's become more common as the population ages, and unfortunately, as many of us get heavier, uh, obstructive sleep apnea in particular is the most common kind of sleep apnea out there. And as you mentioned, this is uh, something that happens as we all fall asleep, our muscles relax, and when those muscles in the back of the throat relax, there's a tendency to narrow the airway, and in some people, it just completely obstructs. When it's almost obstructed, it gets very noisy, and, and many of us will start snoring, and if it just goes a little farther, then all of a sudden, although someone's trying very hard to breathe while they're sleeping, it's really not a successful effort because the upper airway's closed. So that's that's really what's behind obstructive sleep apnea, and as you mentioned, boy, it's, it's quite prevalent. 20 to 30 million Americans have it, and and the prevalence overall or how common it is in the population goes up as we get older. And how many of those people have actually sought help? I mean, how many do we know about? You know, maybe as many as 20% have actually sought out help and been diagnosed and are treated. And so that leaves like 80% of the people out there that are struggling with this disorder and may not even know it. Uh, really? It's really a shame that they don't know about it because there are some very significant consequences to having untreated obstructive sleep apnea. You know, one of them that's sort of the most obvious is that if while you're sleeping, you actually are just struggling to breathe and getting woken up again and again, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 times per hour, it is fairly apparent that that's going to interrupt the quality of your sleep. But the person doesn't realize that they're being woken up, right? Exactly. Very often the patient themselves that has the sleep apnea is not aware. They might be aware, and oftentimes they'll complain, gee, I know I go to bed tired. 
either I don't sleep so well as I used to or I wake up thinking that I slept well and I'm really not well rested. And that, so that's one of the main consequences. One of the main consequences of obstructive sleep apnea is that people are sleeping. They have a significantly higher risk of automobile accidents and falling asleep during meetings and professional performance. But in addition to that, these repetitive pauses in their breathing are associated with a lot of stress on the heart and the brain. And so we know that people with obstructive sleep apnea have increased problems with depression and insomnia complaints, uh, decreased libido, their social interactions aren't as good. It can also cause a lot of problems with uh, uh, vascular complications, actually. They have a higher likelihood to develop high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes, heart rhythm problems like atrial fibrillation. So these all get quite serious and should get people's attention and are good reasons to seek out help if you might be one of those that have obstructive sleep apnea. Is it the 20% of people who do come and get help, the 80% of people just think it's snoring, it's not my problem, I'm asleep, it's everybody else in the house's problem? I, I, th- that is, I think that is true. Very often when I see patients, you know, they'll sort of say, well, my wife says that I snore. And I often will say that, well, is your wife prone to uh, lying? Or, you know, <laughs> but, but I think there is a, an issue of people aren't just always aware that snoring is not necessarily innocent. And so, you know, when, you know, when should somebody suspect that they might have obstructive sleep? sleep apnea. They are their bed partner, we'll say. Um, well, I think, you know, we've been talking about snoring a lot. That's just a marker for airway narrowing. Uh, poorly restorative sleep. So you're waking up, you're not really feeling well rested, even though you're, you know, providing an adequate amount of sleep. Or if uh, your bed partner is watching you stop breathing multiple times, that, you know, these are all signs that you, you really could be having problems with some form of sleep apnea, the most common being obstructive. But, but I think you were asking me actually about other kinds of That's sleep right. apnea. Right. So I, I, obstructive I, is by far the most common. It right? is. It is. Uh, but then there's, there's really a, a smaller group of individuals that have a different kind of sleep apnea. Maybe 5% of everybody out there with sleep apnea, 5 to, 5 to 15%, have a kind of sleep apnea that we call central sleep apnea. Now, what's, what's the difference? Remember, in obstructive sleep apnea, the person who has this is trying to breathe, but they can't because their upper airway is obstructed. People with central sleep apnea, the problem is that the brain is intermittently not sending the signal to take those breaths. This is going to happen in people who either have a problem with their brain or there's a problem with their heart. And so the signals are getting a little crossed during the time when their, their body is deciding whether or not to breathe. So the, the risk factors for central sleep apnea really are uh, for a person who has heart disease, especially heart failure, or who've had strokes, or who have uh, fluid overload, like uh, somebody who has you know, insufficiently treated kidney disease. And then interestingly enough, another group of people who have central sleep apnea or have a higher risk for central sleep apnea are people who are on chronic narcotic pain medications. Uh, the, the narcotics uh, tend to affect breathing in, in a way that's somewhat unpredictable. And so in, in these individuals, they may have some of the same symptoms as obstructive sleep apnea, or they may not. They may actually just kind of say, I don't sleep so well, I don't feel well rested. The snoring may or may not be present. And so really the only way to tell a difference is with a sleep test. It, it sounds like uh, the people, that there may be some 18 to 20 million people out there who don't even know they have sleep apnea, but don't you find that the people that do ultimately get treatment are so much happier and so much better and so much less fatigued? Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that. You know, one of the really fun things about uh, what I do, you know, as a sleep specialist is uh, particularly for obstructive sleep apnea, which is so highly prevalent, it's really pretty straightforward to diagnose. You know, there's very good sleep tests that are widely available, and there are many options uh, for treatment that are effective. So, you know, many people know about 
uh, continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP devices, but there's also oral appliances. Uh, here at Mayo Clinic, we also have implantable devices that will actually stiffen the tongue muscles during sleep that are, are good for some people. Implantable devices. Yes. Tell us about so that. We, there is a device that uh, actually is put in just like a pacemaker for obstructive sleep apnea, and that pacemaker basically paces the tongue muscle. So as the patient starts taking a breath, it stiffens those muscles in the back of the throat and can actually treat obstructive sleep apnea. The brand name for it is the Inspire system. And this has been around now for several years. There's only certain patients with obstructive sleep apnea that are good candidates for that, but that can be uh, another option for effective treatment. And there's also surgeries on the upper airway to make more room and so forth. For central sleep apnea, We've had more of a challenge there until just lately. So this is actually a good time to be somebody who has central sleep apnea. All uh, right, but you know, before we talk yeah. about that, let's let's talk a little bit more about risk factors and causes. I mean, you, we're talking about an obstruction of the airway. What causes an obstruction of the airway? Yeah. Well, so I mentioned, you know, it tends to be more prevalent as we get older. You can't do too much about that. But in particular, weight and the distribution of weight seems to be a big uh, factor. So as people put on more weight, and you can kind of see this uh, most dramatically maybe in a neck circumference measurement, a guy or a gal out there that has a neck circumference that's bigger than 16 inches or 15 inches, that's going to be putting you at higher risk for having obstructive sleep apnea. Now, why some individuals develop obstructive sleep apnea and another similarly shaped, similar gender, similar age person doesn't have it is more complicated and it really has to do with neurologic control and musculoskeletal facial features. It can run in families. So if you have a family member who has obstructive sleep apnea, you're more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea yourself. In the intro, we talked a little bit about children and babies. What kind of sleep apnea does that population have? Yeah. In the very young children, you know, most often we're seeing that they'll have obstructive sleep apnea either because of their facial uh, anatomy that just uh, creates a, a scaffolding for a smaller airway, or oftentimes they'll have significantly large tonsils and adenoids mm-hmm. that obstruct the airway. So actually, you know, for younger children, sometimes a surgical treatment is good, but, but we use the same kind of treatments on, on children as we do on adults. We, you can use CPAP and oral appliances and all those things as well. Un- unfortunately, as, as many will be aware, there is an obesity epidemic in the uh, United States and, and, and all of the world. And so we're actually seeing more children who are becoming obese and developing very similar sleep apnea as adults. Really? So, now yeah. that's discouraging. Yeah, it is. It right, is. you know, when we, the risk factors, let's go over those once more because there's actually a mnemonic for that, P-bang. So actually maybe a better uh, kind of phrase to remember is stop bang. Stop bang. So it's, okay. it's the snoring, tired, Obstruction, so people are watching you have these choking or uh, obstruction episodes. Uh, and then the blood pressure is the P. So uh, having elevated blood pressure is a risk factor for sleep apnea. It's probably an association. It's hard to tell which is the chicken and the egg. Probably the obstructive sleep apnea causes the high blood pressure. And then the body mass index is the B. So uh, there's a way you can you can go online and calculate your body mass index by putting in your height and weight. Yep. And if that comes out greater than 35, it, you're, you're, you're pretty heavy. And then the uh, age over 50 and neck circumference we've already talked about, and then the gender being male. So that's the stop bang. Stop bang. Yeah. If, All right. S- sleep apnea with sleep expert Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler. It's time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the diagnosis of sleep apnea and being in the sleep center, and we'll also talk about treatment options for the most common type, obstructive sleep apnea, and also a new device to treat central sleep apnea. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is sleep expert, Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler. We're talking about sleep apnea, both types, obstructive and central. And isn't there a complex type also where you have both? That's absolutely true. Years ago, we started seeing a pattern of some people who start out looking for all the world like they have obstructive sleep apnea. And when we relieve that obstruction and open their airway, lo and behold, they have central sleep apnea behind that. So it really represented a new treatment challenge. You know, how are we going to treat these individuals? Uh, How do you diagnose it? Yeah. So a sleep study is really necessary to diagnose any kind of sleep apnea. Um, we, we, you know, we do have two kinds of sleep studies. Uh, for people who are really looking like they're going to have obstructive sleep apnea, very often we can use a home sleep apnea test. Um, and so this is a device that somebody would use in their own home, in their own bed, or in a hotel room or whatever. And uh, this can very often you know, be adequate to provide an, an, uh, a diagnosis for obstructive sleep apnea. Is it like a machine? Or? Um, it's a, there's, there's several different kinds of devices. The, you know, there are two that we're using very commonly. One uh, actually kind of fastens onto the wrist and the finger and has a little probe that goes onto the chest. It's quite easy to apply, wow. and uh, it works very well. And then there's another that has some little bands that go around the chest and the abdomen and some, some uh, sensors to, to measure flow up at the, uh, at the nose and mouth. So these are both devices that you know a, a person can can affix to themselves at home, and and then we can have those results and review those. And because eighty percent of the people who have it are not being treated, is that covered by insurance? Both the home sleep apnea tests and the in lab sleep tests are covered by insurance. Uh, not surprisingly, there might be a preference to try the home sure. tests. We we don't do the home tests when we are concerned that they might have central sleep apnea. So, and and why is that? Well, the the home tests have really been designed and validated to diagnose obstructive kinds of sleep apnea. So it's not uncommon for a person to maybe need an in-lab study. So that's a, you come to the sleep center. Now let me ask you, it, should any male who snores and is over the age of 50 have a sleep test? I think they should at least talk to their physician and put together whether they have a high likelihood of having obstructive sleep apnea. More and more I'm seeing my waiting room in my office sort of populated by people who are sent from their doctors, their cardiologists, their neurologists, their internists, that uh, this person has high blood pressure, they have heart disease, they have uh, you know poor sleep quality and things like that. And we really can then deal with those individuals very quickly to diagnose them. And as I mentioned, very often we have great treatments for them that uh, are effective and improve their quality of life. They sleep better. They you know many of these uh, risk factors uh, kind of erode as we treat their sleep apnea. I was going to say even more than men over forty. Should anyone who snores mention it to their doctor? Well, yeah, I think I think that's a good idea. And I and I do want to uh, just make one little uh, pitch here. Um, very often people think of obstructive sleep apnea as a male disease. That really is not true. Uh, is that right? Yeah, it really is not true. You know, the prevalence in women uh, does begin to rise uh, in the 40s. And as women uh, go into their 50s and 60s, actually there's not a lot of difference in the prevalence of sleep apnea between men and women. You know, what, what actually happens is that women's sleep complaints are perhaps just a bit different from those of the men. Um, sometimes men are less... Uh, willing to mention that their wife snores, um, and so there, there's just a different presentation. But you know, really, if you are uh, anyone who is having troubles with snoring, poor quality sleep, excessive sleepiness, there's 
an explanation for this that should be sought. All right, we've got a couple of minutes remaining. Let's talk about treatment. First of all, the most common type of obstructive sleep apnea. You've got good treatments for that. Yes. And yes. always have. And is that the, the CPAP? Well, you know, so we've got a variety of things. CPAP, you know, has been around since the 70s, and it's been... Uh, you know, improved upon, so they're smaller, lighter, quieter, more comfortable. They do all kinds of things. So that forces and the airway to stay open. It, it it supports the airway, prevents it from collapsing. That's okay. right. Continuous positive airway pressure? Correct. That what it stands for? Okay. Exactly. And then we have oral appliances that can be fit by dentists who are qualified and, and interested in this type of treatment. And this basically is an is a, uh, oral device, almost like a retainer that one puts in at bedtime. And this holds the jaw into a position that can, in many cases, hold the, the uh, back of the throat open enough for a person to breathe and sleep well at night. There are surgical procedures that alter the configuration of the of the upper airway, either by you know re- remodeling the jawline or by removing some of the tissue inside the back of the throat. And then I mentioned that we have an implantable device for obstructive sleep apnea. And then there's central sleep apnea. All right. Let's yeah. get to that because you've got yeah. a new uh, device to treat that. Yes. Yeah. So for central sleep apnea, you know, one of the problems has been um, – Again, closure of the airway isn't the big problem. So treating patients with central sleep apnea with a CPAP device, which is intended to hold open the airway, rarely has the effectiveness to solve the problem. The brain is still not sending the signal to breathe. So some individuals we can treat with a breathing machine that actually sort of reminds them to breathe over and over again. We call that an adaptive servo ventilator. It has a strange name, but it's basically a machine that both holds the airway open and nudges the patient to take breaths uh, to get them into a more normal rhythm. But for patients with advanced heart failure, studies actually showed that maybe using the second kind of device isn't so good for them. There's some debate and and concern about using non-invasive ventilation devices. So we've been kind of stuck for those patients for a while. And just recently, there's a device that's been FDA-approved. It's also an implantable device. It's implanted by a cardiologist like a pacemaker, but instead of pacing the heart to pump regularly, it actually paces the diaphragm. So it's a device that's put in. It's behind the skin. And when it's time to go to bed and the patient lies down, the device turns on, and it begins to take over the breathing pulse for them. It's been shown to be quite effective. On average, the frequency of these breathing event uh, pauses goes down by 80 90%. But what I'm very compelled by is that the patients, 95% of them, actually say that they would do it again. So that's pretty good. It's an outpatient procedure, just like a pacemaker is. It's uh, well-tolerated. We're excited to be able to offer that treatment to patients now. Absolutely, because you haven't had anything before. Right. Perfect. Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about CBD products. How do you know what's safe? And new mapping techniques for hard-to-treat brain tumors. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Postpartum depression, it's real. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says one out of every ten new moms suffers from it. It's much more than what's called the baby blues because it lasts longer and tends to be more severe. Symptoms include mood swings, anxiety, sadness, crying, irritability, and feeling overwhelmed. Prompt treatment is important, and Mayo Clinic experts say it works. Dr. Summer Allen says that postpartum depression can be diagnosed any time up to the first year after delivery of the child. 
Help and support are key to coping. Get as much rest as you can. Accept help from family and friends. Connect with other new moms. Carve out time for yourself and avoid alcohol. Talk to your health care provider if you have symptoms because treatment, again, can help. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cannabidiol, or CBD. Now, those products have become increasingly popular with patients who are seeking relief from pain, from anxiety, from sleep disturbances, and other chronic conditions. But the question is, are CBD products safe and effective? What's the science? What's the evidence? And what's the latest research? It's time to find out from two Mayo Clinic experts. Joining us in studio is Dr. Brent Bob. Director of Research for the Mayo Clinic Integrative Medicine Program and Mayo Clinic Internal Medicine Specialist, Dr. Karen Mock. Welcome to the program, both of you. Thank you. Great to have you both here. We want the straight scoop on this stuff. (laughs) So first of all, tell us what this is. So if you think of cannabis, right, the plant cannabis sativa, that's the source of marijuana that gets you high. But it's also the same plant bred differently that gives us hemp. And hemp is different because it doesn't have the THC. So one plant, kind of different forms. Hemp, no THC, no way to get high, no psychoactive components that we think of. Marijuana, lots of THC. So there's kind of our difference. And what we're talking about today are things that are derived from hemp, not with THC. So is hemp the same thing as cannabidiol? So hemp is one of the best sources of cannabidiol. There's really two main active components in the cannabis plant. THC is one of them. Cannabidiol is the second. But there's a number of cannabinoids, so other chemicals that are similar to cannabidiol that are part of the overall uh, plant makeup for hemp. And we think a lot of the cool stuff isn't just cannabidiol. It may be in some of these other ingredients. We certainly uh, know that there can be trends in medicine, but why is it that there is CBD everywhere now, Dr. Mock? Well, I think there's a lot of interest in medical marijuana uh, for treatment of anything from nausea to pain to anxiety. And there's interest now in cannabidiol or CBD because people don't want maybe the the psychoactive effects of THC, but they maybe want the the effects, the side effects, um, which are some of the cannabidiol side effects that help with some of these symptoms. And so I think there's a real push to try to find these things that, that that's legal that will also maybe treat symptoms that are hard to treat with other medications that we have available. So I think that's why there's more interest. And is there FDA approval? Or are we still years away from the FDA catching up to this game? Well, <laughs> you both better comment on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Uh, first of all, FDA doesn't really approve supplements, uh, but what they do is to create that category of supplements. But this really can't be a supplement now because cannabidiol as a purified extract has now been marketed as a drug. So Epidiolex is the drug form of CBD that's been studied in those two rare uh, epilepsy syndromes, Dravet syndrome and... Lennox Gestalt. Very difficult ones to treat, not many good treatment options, devastating to the kids who have them. CBD comes along and it seems to have a very good effect on those kids. So now we actually have cannabidiol as a drug, which makes the regulatory environment very difficult because technically drugs can't also be dietary supplements. So this is where the FDA is kind of going around a little bit. The federal level hasn't really fully embraced 
uh, cannabidiol and whether it's related to does it come from marijuana, does it come from hemp. But the Farm Bill Act of last December has declared hemp as a legal crop. It's no longer considered a Schedule Five drug. So we have this kind of sort of permission at the federal level. States are doing their own things all over the place. And in between there, the FDA is saying, wait, we're going crazy with this stuff. It seems to have some promise, but it can't be for everybody. And now we're seeing that it can have drug-herb interactions, and we're seeing it can irritate the liver. So it's not a free lunch. It's not magic for everybody. How do we slow it down a little bit and try and get some of those questions answered? I think that's the take of the FDA right now. So, But what's the difference between the prescription drug that is available for these seizure disorders, the rare seizure disorders, and what you can get over the counter? The purified form is the CBD oil, and the the drug form of that is a purified form. What we're getting and seeing that's available on the market are all sorts of, because it's not controlled, we're seeing uh, things that have the cannabidiol, the CBD, in addition to terpenoids, sometimes they add echinacea, some other things, a lot of other many other chemicals and and herbs that that can be part of that supplement. And so we don't always know, and it's not controlled. The amounts aren't controlled. So it's very hard to get a hold of the purified CBD. But for the most part, what we get here is people trying to sell anything, and even hemp seed oil. And there's really hardly any CBD in hemp seed at all. So it's just a huge money-making endeavor right now. And so I think it's just that's part part of the difficulty in trying to control this, and people trying trying to find the right supplement that works for them. Well, you can buy it everywhere, mm-hmm. at gas stations, at grocery <laughs> stores, at the video store, um, yeah. strip malls. There, It is just absolutely everywhere. So how do you know where a good provider is? Is there a list of those providers? You know, I think a couple steps, even before you purchase, first thing you need to do is you need to talk to your doctor, mm-hmm. right, or your care team. Mm-hmm. Because we are seeing that the cannabidiol and some of the other elements in hemp can interfere with many drugs. So you may have a very important drug at a good level in your body. Taking cannabidiol may actually accelerate the metabolism and cause it to go too low, or it may inhibit metabolism and cause it to go too high. So it's not a free lunch. Everybody shouldn't just run out and try it. So talk to your your physician first. Second thing we're seeing is at high enough doses to be effective, there are at least a few reports coming out of liver toxicity seems to be reversible. You stop it and it goes away. But how do you know that? Well, you need to work with your care team to get the blood test and so forth. So I don't think that's don't try it. I think it is if you're going to try it, let's make it a coordinated effort with our care team. And that's the first step, I think. And you say try it. Try it for what? I think the things that we see a lot of the preliminary data are around pain. And that's one of the interesting things. People are touting this as a way to help treat the opioid epidemic. So in other words, there are some interesting studies in rats that rats that are given CBD seem to be able to get off opioids, uh, seem to get some pain control. Uh, there seems to be something there in the preclinical arena. We haven't yet seen large clinical trials where people have said, does this work in humans? Anecdotally, it seems to help with pain. Anecdotally, it seems to help with anxiety. But we're physicians at Mayo Clinic. We have to wait until somebody shows us really good long-term trials that weighs the efficacy against the harm. And there are all different forms of it. How do you know what to take? I mean, is it best to take it by mouth? Or if you have knee pain, can you rub it on your knee? Or how you can spray it? I mean... (laughs) You can get lollipops. You can get, you know, they have it in jelly beans. Yeah. So there's... Beer. Do they all have heard that? Beer infused CBD. CBD beer? No. 
So I think the, the problem with trying it, for example, um, after we did this uh, article, I wanted to try it because I'm like, okay, let's see what this stuff does because I have some, you know, some hip pain or knee pain. I didn't notice any difference, but I think you have to remember that each pr- preparation that you get has a different percentage of CBD and then a percentage of who knows what. Mm-hmm. Um, and so depending on the percentages of CBD, that may affect how efficacious it is for whatever you're trying to treat. So I think if, even if you try one product, it doesn't mean that you maybe, you maybe you respond, maybe you don't. It may be that it's not in the right percentage. So I think it's very difficult to know uh, what, what to even try. And so where do you get the... Uh, names of those you know tom i think there's a general question there and how do we as consumers find a good quality supplement whatever we're using it for and i think there's a couple things we've learned over the years we know there's something called good manufacturing practices and that's mandated in the united states so first thing you should look for is make sure the product you're looking at meets gmps it should say it on the label there should be some validation we when we're doing research studies here on supplements look for companies that are also certified by the european union and the australia uh, supplement uh, regulations very stringent so if you can meet all three you're doing great fourth thing we ask the supplement company to do is make sure they have an adverse reporting structure that's outside of their company. So if you have a company, you're supposed to collect information if there's adverse events. Most companies just take that internally and we never see it. A good company will have an independent company do that so that we can actually track and see if there's things evolving. So I think that's the homework we have to do. We have to find those few companies that are out there that meet those high criteria and then look to them for the products that at least we know might be a little more expensive but have a better chance of being quality as opposed to going to the Internet and you know taking the gummy bears at the local gas station. Yes, there's been a huge surge in the interest in CBD products, and there's growing evidence to support the use of CBD oils for a variety of conditions, including chronic pain and opioid addiction, at least in rats. <laughs> the problem is studies on the safety and true effectiveness of cannabidiol are still lacking. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic experts Dr. Brent Bauer and Dr. Karen Thank you for being with us. Thank you guys for having us. When we come back, new brain mapping techniques to help treat brain tumors. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Dr. Kaisan Chaichana is a neurosurgeon and the director of brain tumor surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. He joined us by telephone to talk about brain surgery, recent advances. And tell us about his research efforts to find new and better ways to treat patients with brain tumors. Welcome to the program, Dr. Chaichana. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Chaichana, um, I know that uh, you're head of the brain tumor group down there, but tell us about your uh, your work and how long you've been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm relatively new to Mayo Clinic. I was uh, I did all my training at Johns Hopkins. I did my medical school, my residency, my fellowship in skull-based neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. And I was on staff there for two and a half years before I came here in January of 2018. So I've been here for uh, almost a little over a year and a half. And why uh, why Mayo Clinic? What attracted you to Florida and Mayo? Well, I like the whole Mayo um, mentality or the whole Mayo thought process where the needs of the patient comes first. But the biggest thing that's a that's a, a good thing about Mayo is that we are all salaried and we're all work as a team. So what that means is we're not incentivized to do uh, to do very many cases. We just try to do what's right for the patient. So I like the whole 
uh, the whole mentality that Mayo Clinic has. And uh, what helps is the chairman of my department, Dr. Quinones, is a dear friend of mine who I worked with for several years, for almost 15 years at Johns Hopkins, and he came down here to lead our neurosurgery group, and so he was the Perfect. other Perfect. Yeah. yeah, Dr. Q, we know him. Yep, exactly. <laughs> what got you interested in brain tumors? Um, well, I actually worked with him as a medical student with brain tumors, and that's really what caught my eye about brain tumors. Initially, I wanted to do spine surgery, but brain tumors are interesting in that there's certain tumors that are benign that you can really make a difference with surgery by changing someone's uh, natural history. If they have a brain tumor, you can almost cure them, but other tumors are cancerous, so there's a lot of research being done on those brain cancers. So it has a wide spectrum of different outcomes and different studies. So... Uh the the benign ones you can remove and you can cure. The mm-hmm. cancerous tumors, can you cure cancer of the brain, primary cancer? Most cancers you cannot cure. We can we can extend the lifespan but not cure them for most of the brain cancers at this point. The ones that are we can't really cure for the most part are glioblastoma and metastatic brain cancers. So you said metastatic. So that mm-hmm. means that there are certain certain tumors in other parts of the body that actually can spread to the brain through the bloodstream? Correct, yeah. So whenever you have a brain tumor, there's always two varieties. There's ones that start within the brain and stay within the brain, and we generally call those gliomas. And there's other tumors that spread from elsewhere from the body and then go towards the brain, and we call those metastatic brain tumors. The most common sites are typically lung, breast, um, kidney, and skin. But I thought there was a blood-brain barrier. I remember back in, in medical schools, so well, that that's why it would ke- protect the brain. Yeah, that's why the chemotherapy Correct. has such a hard time getting up there. Exactly. So with the blood-brain barrier, it, it prevents a lot of uh, molecules and cells that are too large from penetrating the blood-brain barrier to protect our central nervous system. However, a lot of these cancers, especially metastatic brain cancers, they found a way to bypass that by opening up the blood-brain barrier through different mechanisms, and that's basically what my lab lab studies is, how these cells break the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, I didn't fare. The other thing I've thought when I hear people, um, when you hear about someone's brain tumor is that someone will say it's located, you know, right up at, in the front or it's in the back behind the ear or it's right in the middle. Um, is there a spot that is one that's worse than the other to have a yeah. brain tumor? Well, so there's the more, the, in general, the deeper the brain tumor is from the surface of the brain, the worse it is because the brain, how it works, is it has a lot of white matter tracts or pathways that go from the surface deep down to the brain to the spinal cord where it controls our functions. So as you go deeper and deeper in the brain, a lot of the fibers are more condensed, and therefore there's a lot more valuable real estate deeper in the brain. So uh, how do most of these patients present who have uh, tumors, whether they're benign, malignant, or metastatic? Yeah, so nowadays most of the patients present incidentally with headaches where they get a headache and they get a scan because there's a wide variety, wide availability of different imaging modalities like MRI and CT scans. Ten years ago when it was not so widespread, it's usually when patients have seizures, but nowadays headaches is the most common symptom. Ah, interesting. And um, let's take a benign tumor, for example, a meningioma. Is that the most common uh, benign brain tumor? Yep, that's correct. And how long does it take you uh, to get that tumor out? And where are most of them located? Yeah, so most of the meningiomas luckily are on the surface. And so we call them convexity or they're along the convex of the skull. Um, so it doesn't take very long. It depends on if it's wrapped around structures. But a typical surgery ranges from one to three hours. But if these tumors are more deeply seated, like along the skull base, they can take six to eight to even ten hours. And, and how do you get through the skull? 
So we have a special, so it depends on where, but if it's on the convexity or the top of the surface, we have a special drill that drills a hole, and then we're able to remove the skull with the special drill, and then we always put the bone back with titanium plates. But if it's along the skull base, sometimes we can even access those tumors through the nose. Uh, anything that makes Tracy queasy, that's why I ask those questions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying for the sake of video to just have a straight poker face on. That's one. But uh, we hear so much, many guests that we have, we talk about minimally invasive surgery for like heart surgery. Um, going up through the nose certainly is minimally invasive. Ooh. Is that, <laughs> so so to speak, is mm-hmm. that the direction that brain, uh, brain cancer surgery is heading? Well, so... Surgery through the nose is typically limited to uh, uh, tumors along the skull base or the base of the skull. Um, So you can't access the top of the brain through the the nose because it's just too far and you have to go through too much real estate. So we have minimally invasive ways to go through the nose, to go to the skull base, above the eye, to go around the skull base, and even little ports that we do on top of the skull to go into the brain themselves. So I know that there are still some tumors that you just can't operate on or you just can't get them all out. Tell us what you're doing from a research standpoint uh, for those patients. Yeah, so we're studying a lot of different things. Um, my lab in specific, uh, specifically, uh, as well as Dr. Q's lab, we're studying stem cell therapy. So a lot of these tumors, especially glioblastoma or brain cancers, even though you think you removed it all, there's cells that escape the, t- the mass and where you can't see on MRI imaging. So we're trying to program stem cells, more, more so fat cells from one's own body, to program these cells to release different proteins to kill these tumor cells far away from the original tumor site. So then you would uh, give those cells into the bloodstream? Correct. And then they would hopefully cross the blood-brain barrier and, yeah. and kill the cancer? Correct, and then home to the tumor site. And that would be a better or might be a better alternative to, let's say, radiation or chemotherapy? Correct, because the problem with radiation, chemo, and surgery is basically we, we try to remove all the cancer cells that we can see, but the ones that we can't see, we can't really pinpoint. Chemotherapy theoretically takes away those cells, but the issue with chemotherapy, it also can kill normal cells as well. But stem cell therapy is different than the vaccines that we've heard about over the past Mm -hmm. years, correct? Yeah, so there are other labs on our campus that use vaccines or immunotherapy to try to program the one's own cells to kill those tumor cells, just like they would in in a common cold or a virus or something like that. In general, are brain tumors a pretty nice size lump, or do they have lots of those tendrils that we hear about? Yeah, so the cancers, especially glioblastoma, has the tendrils. The other tumors generally form a lump. So that is also um, when it, why it's advantageous over surgery to do stem cells or vaccines, because then you can get all of those tentacles. Correct. Yeah, so... Some of the surgeries that we do here now, we use a fluorescent uh, mechanism where the tumors metabolize the fluorescence and we can see it. But these, as you can see, these fluorescent areas are hard to get to without damaging normal brains. So these stem cell therapy would be an ideal way to treat these. That's cool. Yeah, well, hopefully much of your research comes to fruition. You know, there's nothing simple about brain surgery and tackling brain tumors in difficult locations is a real challenge. And maybe someday there will be other methods that will help us. But Dr. K. Soren Chaichana and his colleagues at the Mayo Clinic in Florida are developing new and better ways to treat these patients. We wish you all the success in the world, Dr. Chaichana. Thanks for being with us. Perfect. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.